Hello and welcome to The Lydia Project, conversations with Christian women. My name's Tori Walker and this is episode 37. Before I tell you about today's special guest, I just want to say a quick thanks to those who've left us an iTunes review. Taryn and I read them all and it's helpful to know what it is that you appreciate about the content. So please take the time to leave us a review if you haven't and know that it will also help others to choose to listen to this podcast, which would be great. Well, as I previewed on Facebook last week, I got my city clothes on and went up to the 36th floor to meet my next guest in her Brisbane office. As I stood in the lobby waiting for security to let me in, I saw the Commonwealth of Australia logo impressively printed on the glass doors and on the metal plaques on the wood panelling. And I felt the importance of this interview. I was there to interview one of Queensland's 12 senators, Senator Amanda Stoker. I was a little intimidated, but she was so warm and candid and she quickly put me at ease, which is funny because sometimes that's my role when I interview people. Amanda became a senator in March 2018, filling a retirement vacancy in the Liberal Party. In our conversation, we chat about her experience in the legal field before entering politics, her family, her convictions about freedom of speech, and her thoughts about how Christians should be engaged in the cultural and political conversations. Of course, Christians vote in all sorts of different ways, and there are Christian politicians in all major political parties in Australia. So you may not agree with everything that Amanda says in this interview because she's unashamedly from the conservative right and is happy to share her views. But whether you agree with everything she says or not, I'm sure you'll be glad that there are people like her in politics in Australia, advocating for the good of our society and its citizens. She's plain speaking in a good way, proud of her convictions, generous and razor sharp. So come with me into the world of federal politics as I chat with Senator Amanda Stoker. Amanda, thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed on the Lydia Project podcast. A pleasure. Thank you. And just for our listeners, we're sitting in a beautiful corner office overlooking Brisbane. It's a really good view. It is really very pretty, although I confess my eagerness to get out of this office tower and into a more accessible (laughs) office, which will be in Mount Cravat soon. So, looking forward to that. Good. So, Amanda, tell me, how did you come to faith in Christ or grow significantly in him, if that's a more relevant question for you? I grew up in a household where, at least when we were little, mum and dad took us to Sunday school. But it wasn't a practice that lasted in terms of family habits. In high school, I had a good group of um, Christian friends. Uh, One was an Anglican, another a Lutheran. I would go to church with them and I found it helpful and meaningful and a really good anchor through teenage years. And I sort of stuck with it personally and then I met my husband who was also an Anglican and we made a commitment together. This was going to be a part of our lives. So we approached our preparation for marriage in that spirit and yeah, here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Now, I know you studied law and you actually decided to work in Queensland even though you're from Sydney, New South Wales? Yeah. Yeah. So what type of law did you practice? I started out in practice in the corporate M&A mergers and acquisitions section of a big firm in Sydney. It was intellectually challenging, but I didn't love the culture of it, if that makes sense. But I had organised an associateship with a judge of the High Court. His name was um, Justice Ian Callanan, and he is brilliant and For that, I left the big firm and went to work for him. And the job was in Canberra, but he was a Queenslander. 
And during that time, uh, I spent a lot of time in Brisbane, absolutely fell in love with the place. And I said to my husband, yeah, Brisbane needs to happen. And so he organised a transfer with his work yep. and we ended up up here. When my associateship with um, Justice Callanan came to an end, um, I decided to do another one with a Queensland Supreme Court judge. Mm -hmm. His name was, um, still is, Justice <laughs> Philip McMurdo, of the, then of the Supreme Court commercialist. He's now in the Court of Appeal. Um, but that was getting some trial work experience, whereas yeah. in the High Court you did all appeals and constitutional work. And doing those two associateships helped me reach the view that I wanted my legal career to be at the bar. And so I set about preparation for that, spent some time as a prosecutor because I knew I'd get heaps of time in court. And I was doing that for the Commonwealth Government, which covered everything from unglamorous work like welfare fraud through to, you know, higher pressure work like drug importations, meaningful but horrible work like prosecuting child pornographers and all different kinds of federal offences in between. Yep. And that was really useful, really challenging and just what I needed as a lawyer to grow at that point in time. After a number of years there, I decided to do the bar practice course and hang out my shingle and go out on my own, as all barristers do. You know, they all are self-employed and yep. that's part of the, the promise that you get from the bar of independent, fearless advocacy. We don't belong to anybody. Uh, and I went to the bar and my practice was um, in a combination of commercial work, administrative law, which is the law of people's disputes with government. Mm -hmm which is not a bad fit for the kind of work I do now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also I continued to do some crime, but it was usually prosecuting more white collar crime for the Commonwealth. Yep. Wow. So pretty broad um, experience then. <laughs> like it is, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's been a really, yep. really challenging, interesting adventure, but that's one of the great things about the law and the bar. I yep. mean, it can can be challenging for life if you yep. want it to be yeah and so if you're somebody who has a curious mind and a love of learning mm. it's a great career if you're someone who wants to feel like you've mastered it within the first year or two it is not the career for you <laughs> <laughs> well and the law's always changing isn't it so mm. you'd never have a handle on a set body of information yeah Amanda, I first heard you speak at a pro-life rally outside Queensland Parliament House. I don't know if you remember the day. It was so, it was so hot. hot. <laughs> it was so hot. And you were just new then and you were yeah. dressed in white and you were enthusiastic and it was great for me to hear you speaking there. But tell me, um, you know, what were those early months like in politics for you? I mean, there's a steep learning curve and there's a process of... Um, dealing with the bureaucracy associated with coming into a new role, particularly government one, the sort of bureaucracy comes with the territory. And there's the process of having some things meet your expectations, other things surprise you, and you know that's interesting and part of the journey too. I didn't expect that my decision to show up as somebody who was pro-life in those very early days, and so the, the time we did that rally was in between when the Liberal National Party had chosen me to fill the vacancy and the moment at which I was sworn in. Mm. It was in that gap. Mm. I didn't expect my attendance there to potentially jeopardise the Queensland Parliament's decision to follow the normal protocol and um, always pass a motion that would fill the vacancy 
in accordance with the party's wishes. Okay, so, I didn't know that So there's either. a protocol that okay. says if someone from the Liberal Party uh, retires and there's a casual vacancy, although it's the Queensland Parliament that needs to fill the vacancy, if, say, the Liberal National Party don't have the numbers, there's nevertheless a protocol that says those numbers, whoever holds them, will be used in accordance with the tradition that says you fill from the same party. And likewise for the Labor Party, right? Yep. So hold on, so the state government... Yeah, the state parliament sends you to yeah? federal... Because senators are representatives of the, the state, state they live right. in. Yeah. So okay. there was a real question in that week about whether Labor, particularly because it's so dominated by Jackie Trad, would in fact follow the protocol because she found my pro-life views so abhorrent. Yeah. But hey, all's well that ends well. They came to the party in the end. Energetic start for it you. It was an interesting start. <laughs> and look, all, all was fine. But I, I mean, I've got a view that we need more politicians who are prepared to go out on a limb for their convictions, even if there are personal consequences. And the idea that you have people who get selected and then suddenly run from anything that might be controversial is part of the reason I think people don't have as much confidence in politicians as they once did. So... I'm still very glad I did it. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. And all's well that ends well. I got yep. sworn in and hopefully I've been useful since. <laughs> so how long's it been since then? Um, maybe a year and three months, yeah. yeah. And so is it about half-half split year in Canberra and year in Brisbane or a bit less? It's about a third in Canberra, yep. I'd say. But even the time that you're in your home state, you're on the road. It's probably, in reality, more like a third in Canberra, a third in Brisbane, and a third elsewhere in Queensland. And what's the elsewhere in Queensland work involve? You travel about the state, hearing about issues that may require a government solution, and trying that... to understand how different policies um, will affect the different parts of Queensland differently. That's quite important. You yeah. know, we can have, for instance, um, an energy policy that works great for South East Queensland, that can be really bad for the regions. Um, similarly, a water policy that might work well for the regions might work terribly for South East Queensland. It's about help making sure that we're working for everybody. And yep. so that involves listening to and hearing from people and industries and businesses and community groups statewide. And so that's kind of your research that you'll do before you vote on a policy? Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Excellent. And then do you get allocated particular areas of interest or particular committees that you're going to be on? How does that work? When I initially was sworn in, I was just allocated a bunch yep. of committees and sort of go, oh, off you go, make the best of it. <laughs> but it was fine. I got some really interesting ones. Yep. And, you know, I tend to think if you approach any area curiously, you will find things you can improve and ways to add value and, and all that. So when I arrived in Canberra, my policy committees were economics, finance and public administration. I've got the committee dealing with Indigenous recognition in the Constitution, public accounts and audit, the future of work and workers, public works. I could keep going. <laughs> there was a fair few of them. Yeah. Um, but in the new parliament, those have shifted a little bit. And so late last... So are they continuing committees, are they? Mostly? Mostly. Or, yeah. Some of them were short-term committees, yeah. like future of work and workers was a shorter-term committee. Uh, Constitutional recognition was a shorter term committee, but other ones are permanent committees that continue on, like economics or finance and public administration yeah. or public accounts and audit or public works, they continue on for the long term. And the law um, does give you quite a good background for a lot of them, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's funny, people always say, oh, you know, we don't need lawyers in parliament. And I get that you don't want to just have lawyers in parliament, but as it turns out, having some people 
who can understand or properly interpret or write in you know the terms of a bill uh, it's actually a pretty useful skill to have <laughs> absolutely but it shouldn't be homogenous we yeah, should yeah. have people from all different kinds of backgrounds ideally yeah but in the new parliament my committees are i'm the chairman now of legal and constitutional affairs on the senate i've got chair of the joint committee on law enforcement integrity which is another interesting responsibility and my other fairly heavy committee responsibility is to be a member of the parliamentary committee the joint committee on intelligence and security that's a very important committee of the parliament and um, a big responsibility an honor to to carry it yeah i mean does it feel like that it feels like a, a privilege and yeah, an honor it does. yeah it really does and mm. that doesn't well at least in my short time so far it doesn't stop it's most like politicians thing. that i have spoken to or met they say that it is and i actually believe them i think for most of them the ones that I've met, it does seem that they, yeah, genuinely have that sense that it's a really important job that, that they're doing and, you know, the work in the committees and the votes that they take, yeah, that they take seriously. Yeah, I think that's true. I think For most or not? Well, no, I think it's true yeah. of, of all different sort of mm. political colours. Mm. Most people see it as an immense privilege mm. and they see it as the weighty responsibility that it is. And that's true whether you think of the committee work, whether you think of the work you do in the chamber and the, the opportunity that affords you to contribute to legislation or to speak up on issues that are important to the people you represent. But even in the um, constituent work that you do, you know, the people who come to see you are usually people who are out of options and they're at the end of their tether and they're often an emotional mess. They're sometimes difficult to deal with, but what a privilege it is to be that last port of call for people when they really do feel like they've got nowhere else to go. It's a very special thing. So I'm not sure if it was one of the committees that you're involved in. The oh, Senate estimates, so that's different to committees, isn't it? So Senate estimates is where the standing committees of the Senate gather yep. and have the public servants and the ministers relevant to that committee appear and you can ask them questions about just about anything. It's your chance to scrutinise the way they apply the laws of the parliament, the way they use public money, and you can use it to, I guess, critique what they're doing and what they're not doing. And it can be a really uh, powerful opportunity to bring issues to the surface that you or the people that you're representing have come to you and said, we really need to deal with this. So it's a bigger opportunity for those in opposition than it mm. is in government. Most of the time, um, you know, for government, it's meant to be a low-key kind of affair. Um, but you still pick your issues, and yeah. some things you might make an individual judgment call that says, yeah, we're in government, but we need to do a lot better on this. Mm. And unless I shine a light on it, you know, that might not happen as quickly as it needs to. So yeah. you can use estimates for that too. But estimates usually happens twice a year. Right. It's a two-week block each time. And each of each of the committees will meet for pretty much a whole week. Right. And provide you know, a pretty significant amount of time to scrutinise you know, every little line item in the budget and how it's getting applied in those portfolio areas. Yeah. Okay, so th that helps me understand. Thank you. <laughs> um, because I read an article in The Australian, actually, before I get to that, it was a lovely article and it was funny because it did mention um, that your girls stand up and give speeches and call it that they're, they're doing the Senate or something. And it reminded me, oh, it's a beautiful picture, but my, my husband used to work as a Christian minister and I remember my little boys used to stand up and they'd set up all the teddies and they'd do sermons. Oh, isn't that beautiful? 
So I'm sure I'm raising one. Came home from work one day to find my three girls, yep. all of whom at the time were under five, um, had got a whole lot of dining room chairs, arranged them in an arch, a bit like how the chairs are arranged in an arch in the Senate. And they were taking turns on giving speeches about things they thought were important. Mm. I was very pleased to see one of them giving a speech on why you need to let your parents sleep. <laughs> I thought that was a very, very important subject for them to explore. <laughs> there was another speech on the importance of eating all of your dinner. <laughs> Glad that one's getting through too. <laughs> and it was beautiful. And yeah. you know, at the risk of being a bit oversharey, it was one of those moments when you go, you know, the occasional bits of mother guilt are worth withstanding for um, the moments when you get to see that you're not harming them. You are, in fact, enhancing their understanding of a really important part of their world. And, yeah, it was a nice moment. It's very good. Yes, now that article also talked about some of your questions in Senate estimates um, regarding the tertiary education sector and freedom of speech, which mm. is obviously a super hot topic at the moment with Israel Folau and, I mean, just freedom of speech generally, especially yeah. at universities. So I guess my first question is, why do you think Christians should care about freedom of speech in our country? Great question. Freedom of speech matters because if we restrict the things we can speak about, we're only a generation away from restricting our ability to think about those things. You know, there's a reason why in communist or hardline socialist countries, the first thing they do is start to control language. And that's because if you take away people's words for a particular concept, a particular event, feeling, whatever, you take away people's ability to express that set of emotions, that set of feelings, that set of ideas. If we don't fiercely defend the right to freedom of speech, we are not far away from losing our ability to think, lose that, we lose our ability to solve the problems we face as a nation. And then, you know, then the spiral goes pretty quickly downwards. Mm. So freedom of speech, in my view, is absolutely core to future-proofing our country. Now. There has been a bit of a slide in, I'd say, the last maybe two decades, and it's associated with the rise of identity politics, in my view. In a desire to be extra polite to particular groups or a desire to never offend people who might have had, at some point in their history, difficulties to overcome, we have tiptoed so much around some subjects that it means there are many people who don't feel comfortable even being exposed to ideas that challenge um, that tiptoeing. It's part of the reason why in our universities, whenever there are you know, two challenging ideas being presented, there's you know, a whipping out of the Play-Doh for people to be able to de-stress or the shipping in of puppies for people to pat because heaven forbid we should have to cope with ideas that are different to our own. And these are... <laughs> I mean, you're not making a joke. No, no, like, I'm not being silly. This is real. Doing this, yeah, <laughs> it's real. Um, absolutely. And so, we've taken away from the place that most needs to be able to cope with new ideas. You know, our universities are supposed to be places where all ideas are in bounds, and we can be the most creative, you know, with our thinking. And yet, these are now places where some speakers are no longer welcome 
because their views challenge that postmodernist identity politics kind of orthodoxy. And it's a really scary thing. Mm. If they're supposed to be the protectors of intellectual freedom and freedom of speech, and they are abandoning the cause of standing up for people whose ideas might be a bit different, then that's our, our biggest institutional bulwark against mm. this encroachment. We've seen it in the US. This process takes away the resilience of current students, but you know they become our, our graduates, our workers, our leaders, our thinkers, our CEOs and our politicians. Um, it takes away their ability to have civil conversations with people who think differently to themselves. It takes away their ability, their kind of emotional resilience to deal with things that are different. And that is deeply harmful to having a tolerant society, a truly tolerant society, where people who think or have experienced um, or have ideas that are different can constructively get along. And I think that's a big part of the kind of polarisation we've seen culturally in recent years. Identity politics might have been well-meaning, mm. but it's done some pretty deep harm. And as we are coming to appreciate that, I think we need to muster as a society a will to act before we go too far down this path. Mm. Long answer, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Do you think there is ever a spectrum then in speech between truth and offence? Like, do those two ever need to be sort of traded off? Look, if, if you're asking whether there are limits to free speech, of course there are. The question for our time is where we draw that line. Historically, the limits that we had on free speech were defamation. You know, you couldn't impugn somebody's reputation in a way that harmed them and in a way that was false. That seems fair enough to me, mm. at least, you know, again within limits. Mm. In more recent years and, and with the rise of this idea that speech can be violence, we've had a lot more encroachments. Now I think most people can get behind the idea that speech which incites another person to act violently should be out of bounds. Most people can come to that. You know, if you are saying things that are so very vitriolic that it would take a right-thinking person to get up out of their chair, take up arms and hurt another person, okay, we should probably not allow that kind of speech. But if you're saying that speech that offends you should be confined, well, I think no. I think we need sometimes to be offended, right? There was a time when the people who spoke out against slavery were saying really offensive things to the established order. And if they didn't have the right to say it, history would have judged, you know, those who didn't stand up and act when they knew that something was wrong very differently, I think. The error I think we've made is for us to accept the proposition that words that merely offend are a form of violence. And they're not. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me, right? That's always how it was in, um, in the Western tradition. And I don't say that to denigrate any other tradition, it's just, that's where we've come from, right? 
that was always what was the guiding principle of how we approached speech and it has always historically provided for the utmost tolerance in a practical sense. Mm. It's just now in our efforts to enshrine tolerance, in a sense raise up minority groups, um, we have in fact set up a system that is quite intolerant. Yeah, legislators and the, the best of intentions going awry. <laughs> um, and so I think we, we need to do something about that. So what is the way forward for Australia at the moment, do you think? Well, that's a good question. There's a, a combination of things. I think we need to be very firm about universities fulfilling their role as the protectors of free thought and free speech. Um, and I'm very comfortable with the idea of imposing KPIs on universities about how they do that. And if they fail to do that, then they shouldn't have access to the $17.5 billion worth of public money they get every year to be our protectors of free thought and free speech. Um, so that's one thing we, we can do and I think we should be open to doing. Um, when it comes to people's ability to express their religious beliefs, um, we've had plenty of examples recently about how there are some cultural challenges to that. I think in a pure world, in a, in a world where I got to choose all of the outcomes, <laughs> that is never going to be the world we live in, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> um, I think probably the best way to help protect our rights to freedom of belief and freedom of expression is to take all of the weapons out of existing discrimination acts because they are the ways that identity politics has been allowed to infiltrate so much of um, government and culture. If we took away all the ways that those acts are kind of uh, inflicted upon other people rather than simply used to increase tolerance and understanding, we could do a lot to stop the misuse of those acts, to um, restrict people's ability to exercise freedom of religious expression. But that's not what's going to happen <laughs> in, in my expectation. Um, I think um, most of your listeners will probably be aware that before the election, um, our party committed to a Religious Discrimination Act, which would be an act that complements those identity politics type acts that says this is another attribute that is protected and that provides some concrete and defined rights for people of faith. Um, that, that's one way. And another, and I think probably the most important way, is for us as a people and as a culture to get a lot better at learning to talk about difficult things rather than hiding from them and learning to agree to disagree respectfully. Mm. We should be able to talk about hard things. We must. And when we either run from them because we don't feel like our ideas are welcome in the public square, as I think many people who are a little bit more traditional thinking have felt mm. in recent years, and they abdicate their place in the conversation, that's not good for our country. But similarly, it's not good, it's not good for people who are very strident to, to shout down and exclude other people. Mm. Partly because it means that they end up with a skewed view of the world they're dealing with, but also because, again, it means that you're not creating an environment in which, let's presume they want to govern, that you're not governing, governing for all. Mm. And so the quiet Australians need to maybe just 
pipe up a little bit more. Is that what? <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> on need that to level. They need to pipe yeah. up, and in a sense, they they had a go at the yeah. last election, which is yeah. is great because you know at the time I put my name forward for this job, I had this like heavy feeling in my heart that our public conversations were going in a direction that I didn't feel fitted at all in many ways with how I hoped my country would go into the future and the country I wanted to leave for my girls. And I just thought, oh, there have to be other people who feel this way. Mm. There have to be. But I can't hear them. And I'm waiting for them to do something about it. And so, you know, fast forward and I'm like, well, I better do that. Um, it would be really good for more people to be willing to stick their neck out and do it too mm. because then we can have a much bigger cultural change. It is interesting. I think in the current climate, there are a few issues that I feel if I say what I think, I don't mind being disagreed with, that's fine. Mm. But just this, I, I, I don't like being misunderstood. Like if I say um, something that I believe and a lot of my friends, like close friends or people who are more distant, think that I'm saying I don't like you or I, you know, mm. I just because I'm saying my ideas are different to yours, that's what I find quite tricky on that level. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of society does misunderstand that idea that you can have different opinions to someone but still respect them and yeah. like them and value them as a person. Mm. I think that is a real shame that we've lost that in amidst all of the identity politics and offence. Yeah. But I'm just, just because I'm saying I disagree with the choice you've made, it doesn't mean I'm saying you're not as valuable as hmm. somebody else or, you know, I don't want to be your friend or something like that. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm. Um, one of the tools of that sort of postmodernist identity politics kind of agenda is to take anybody who disagrees with them and rush to judgment and shame. And it's really unhealthy. Mm. <laughs> Um, because it creates this environment where people assume that disagreement means moral judgment rather than, oh, you know, I'm interested in that mm. and I'm curious and how can we work this through, which is often what people mean when they raise something that's either a little bit different or a little bit taboo. But the, yeah, the rush to, um, to isolate, to judge in that harsh and a morally loaded way is one of the tools used to silence people mm. who have been the quiet Australians. And I mean, even just as you say that, it, it is a bit of a stereotype of some types of Christians that they would be doing that themselves, that judgment, mm. that stereotyping of other groups of people. And I think it's totally what Christians need to be so clear that they're not doing. We it, need to try really, really hard. Yeah. I and mean, just the thing with this whole Israel Folau thing, the thing that finds me yelling at the radio when I'm driving along by myself is when the news reports will come on that came, ab came about because of his homophobic posts. Yeah. Does he really fear homosexual people? No. He, it, like, it's just this kind of very quick kind of conflation with what he said, a whole lot about how he might have said that differently, but what he said and what his intention was that's being imported into it, which I just... Yeah, anyway. look, I hear you. I yeah. really do. You know, was he inarticulate in the way that he expressed himself? Absolutely. But I also have no doubt that in his mind, he was trying to offer the biggest gift he possibly could mm. 
Again, he maybe didn't go about it the right way. (laughs) But from where he's sitting, he was offering salvation. And that is the most generous thing he could possibly offer. Um, But those in the commentariat would see anything other than praise of a homosexual to be homophobic. There's an awful, awful lot of difference Mm. between saying something that isn't necessarily praising and being fearful or or hating. Mm. They're very different. Mm. And, um, you know, I I share your frustration when I I see that. (laughs) Yeah. So I I think, I mean, we're really talking along the topic of a quote that I wanted to read to you from an article I read the other day. So Pat Moynihan, who was a Democrat, I think, said, culture, not politics, determines the success of a society, while liberals, as in American liberals, believe that politics can change a culture and save it from itself. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the role of politics and culture in determining the success of our society. Yeah, it's a really, really important frontier for us at the moment. Mm. People on my side of politics, in the US perhaps, I think are much more comfortable with the idea that all the real action happens in the family. All the things that make us who we are as humans, all the, all the relationships, all the formative experiences, all the things that, the vast majority of things that determine our life outcomes happen in the family. And the best thing you can do is set the conditions for people to be safe and to prosper, but otherwise get out of the way. I think that's true. I really do. We have here in Australia at the moment an interesting situation, though, maybe a different complexion on the same circumstances, where on my side of politics, we've had an approach to... um, policy and the things that we are prepared to talk about that has been really very economic partly because we know that unifies us it's partly because we know that's our core duty right it really is very important that we set the conditions for Australians to prosper but I also think it's driven by a fear by some on my side about talking about things that are controversial and that fear it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. I'm not sure whether it has enabled or whether it has been driven by it. Maybe it's a bit of both. By the fact that as identity politics has been pushed by those on the left side of politics, as it has risen, those who um, speak frankly on matters of culture have been shamed and shut out for their views. In any event, the consequence of the failure to be present and active in cultural debates in the last 20 years has meant that we are in much of this identity politics mess. Um, It means that we have a harder job now to turn around a culture from one in which there is a culture of victimhood in some parts. There is a kind of toxic activism around particular groups in our community. And there is a more pressing need, I think, than ever before for people on the conservative side to be prepared to speak up on matters of culture, to try and equalise that leisure. But in doing so, it's got to be consistent with our belief set. It's got to be consistent with our belief, much like the fellow you quoted. It's got to be consistent with our belief that 
the family is where all the action happens. And you know, I've got this deep-seated belief that every time we ask the government to step in and do another thing that families are meant to do, we make families weaker. And that produces, in the long term, a whole lot of terrible consequences that ultimately end up being other reasons why people come to the government and say, come and fix it. <laughs> so we've got to be very careful about um, always demanding that government fix our problems um, because there are unintended consequences that are significant. When you look at most of our really entrenched social problems of our time, whether they are addiction, the making available of transgender type procedures for under 12s, whether we're talking about um, you know, abuse or neglect of older people, any of those things. And I could make a much longer list than that. They all come down in many ways to the way we have all allowed the family to be undermined and in many ways, and in some places, become weak. So our engagement in the discussion about culture has to be about bringing it back to a world in which we have strong families, we defend the role of family, and um, we are more willing, I think, to say we don't want government to do those things because it makes our families weaker. That is a lot to ask. <laughs> it is. I'm glad you're in politics, not me, Amanda. <laughs> you're very clear thinking about all that. I'm conscious of the time, so, and my next question is actually conscious of your time as well. I'm guessing the answer is probably not much, but are, is there any ministry that you're involved in in your church? Or well, is it just too difficult in this the, window of your life? At the moment, our participation is, um, you know, kind of challenge enough, making sure that it's still a very important part and present in our lives is is important and it's sometimes hard to manage with all the travel and it means that you know we pop into churches in unexpected places rather than always being at our local. One of the joys though has been the way that so many people from different churches, different denominations all over this state have really warmly greeted me and that's been lovely and so you know a week or two ago I popped into say, Glory City Church and I took my family and they did Sunday school there and you know, it, was, it was really lovely to go to a different church and and go and say hello and see what they do there. And I have that warm and inviting experience everywhere. And what a blessing that is. It's oh, huge. Yes. And then my last question, which is my last question to everybody that I interview, Amanda, is uh, what's keeping you standing firm and growing as a Christian? I treat this work as a calling. I, I mean, I really believe that it was God who sort of put that feeling in me that said this isn't going where I want it to go and somebody needs to do something about this and oh hang on <laughs> I think it's gonna have to be me um, so I, I treat it as a calling and I have the the benefit of so many wonderful people who assist me and support me in prayer which is generous and wonderful and so helpful I have a really good annotated Bible uh, which is great for when I'm away from home and you know, it's got those little bits of explanation that help to make sure you're not just moving through the words, you are getting a proper understanding from them as you go through. And then there's my all-time favourite book, and that is Mere Christianity. And I find it helps, helps me to understand where it all fits together so that I can trust. And if there's been one aspect of my faith that I've 
grown into a lot in this role so far. It's the ability to just do the work but trust and, and leave it to God because there are things to do here that are bigger than, than one man or one girl. And that's been, you know, that's been big, but, but it's, it's wonderful and it's an honour and I hope it continues. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Amanda. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate the thoughtful answers that you've given us. And I'm sure people will really learn a lot in listening to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tori. I appreciate you it. You are welcome. Music for this podcast is by the talented Dave Depper, and we are hosted by the Gospel Coalition Australia. We'd love to know what you thought of this episode, so feel free to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Our handle for all the socials is TLPCWCW. You can also send us an email and our address is TLPCWCW at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.